Welcome to Art Matters. I'm Farron Gibson. This series is produced by Art UK, the online home of the UK's art collections. You can visit us at artuk.org and follow us on social channels at artuk.org, spelling out the word dot. Don't forget to rate this podcast wherever you listen to it and hit that subscribe button so you hear about new episodes first. In the 1870s, art critic Walter Pater said that all the arts aspire to the condition of music. If you think about music videos and album covers from the 20th century onwards, it's not difficult to see the connection between music and visual arts. There are even some very obvious examples like Andy Warhol's work with the Velvet Underground or Ariana Grande's Ode to Art History in her God is a Woman music video. But what does it mean to aspire to the condition of music? As far back as we have any written record, pretty soon you come across references to music and to the visual arts and to comparisons between the two. That's Peter Virgo, art historian and writer of the book The Music of Painting, Music, Modernism and the Visual Arts from the Romantics to John Cage. For me, the most interesting source, ancient source, is is Pythagoras. Now, of course, Pythagoras never wrote anything, as far as we know. We have no written text from ancient times. Uh, we have lots of texts that contain elements of Pythagoras's teaching and thinking, but we don't have a text from him. But Aristotle and many other writers refer to Pythagoras's fascination with number, the belief that the entire universe was constructed around number, including music. And it was that notion that music was an essentially mathematical art. This was what fascinated so many other artists. Uh, music seemed to have a kind of inbuilt order that related it to the order of the cosmos. And for that reason, music was highly prized. In later times, it was regarded as one of the mathematical arts alongside astronomy for example, whereas painting and architecture and sculpture, these visual arts, they were rather disparaged because they were seen as manual occupations. It was just about skill and the activity of the hand rather than the mind. For centuries, artists reckoned with the idea that painting and sculpture were lesser art forms and looked to infuse mathematical concepts into their work as a way of raising their status. One stunning example of a marriage of math and architecture is the design of the Pantheon in Rome, built in the second century. The dome creates a perfect half-sphere with coffering that adjusts for the heavy concrete material. Interestingly related to this topic, several notable figures are now buried within it, including artists Raphael and Annabale Caracci, as well as the composer Arcangelo Corelli. These efforts come to a head during the Renaissance when artists and theorists begin to draw on mathematical components of music for inspiration. You have Renaissance theorists of the visual arts trying to find all sorts of reasons why painting, sculpture, architecture should have a higher status, and they look to music and say, well, but let's draw comparisons with music. Let's see if there are any real affinities between the two arts, or if we can't make that work, how about constructing our paintings and our buildings and so on according to systems of mathematical proportion that imitate, mimic those of music? Okay, so music was seen as being 
mathematical. And so at this time they thought, oh, well then let's apply a mathematical framework to art and see how that benefits the art. Is that what you're saying? That's that's pretty much it. All of it is about status. This is about arguing for a higher status for the visual arts, which were seen as inferior. But also this is very largely about music theory. Very little of it is about actual music, about, you know, what you or I would call enjoying music, experiencing music, the lived experience of music. It was about the theory and the mathematics that underlay music. So how could artists translate the theories underpinning an auditory medium into that of a visual medium? Music, in the minds of these older theorists, music had to do very much with proportion and ratio. This was the mathematical aspect of music. Going all the way back to ancient times, theorists have been fascinated by it. Now, this is not an idea, it's not a notion, it's a fact. The basic harmonies of music, the, the consonances and dissonances, can all be related to arithmetical ratios. And I can give you a very simple example. If you, say, are playing the violin, let's say you play the open G string. So you haven't got your fingers on the fingerboard, you're just bowing the string. So the whole length of the string is vibrating. And if you're playing the open G string, you'll get G. Here we are. Here's G. If you put your finger down at exactly the halfway point on the string, so you're dividing it into two equally, you'll get the octave above. So that's the ratio of one is to two. So half is to one, one is to two. And if I play those two notes together, they sound completely consonant to the, such an extent that if I were to keep doing this, you know, here's my latest composition in the key, key of G major, you know. People would say, well, but that's really boring. You know, you're, you're never going to sell that one because yes. um, you keep on playing the same note, but it's not the same note. Yeah. They're different, but they are perceived as being the same. And that is somehow bound up with the fact that this is the simplest numerical ratio. Now, divide that same string in a different way. So put your finger down on the string one third of the way along and leave two thirds to vibrate. That gives you a ratio of two thirds. And then what you'll hear, here's your G string, put your finger down a third of the way along and you'll hear, and that's the fifth. And we perceive that as consonant. And now all of a sudden, no, it's not the same note. But if we do that, there we are. We have perfect consonances. And if I put this in as well, we're perfectly happy. So these are ratios of one is to two, two is to three, three is to four, and so on. And these are the ratios of the smallest whole numbers and they are, this is a fact of acoustics, it's not some received idea or crackpot notion. This is how the consonances in music are constructed and can be expressed in mathematical terms. Now, of course, if you're an architect laying out a building, you think, well, maybe I could argue for 
the status of my building, the importance, the fact that it's connected to the cosmos by using those same ratios. And it went so far that some architects were even claiming that the, the musical proportions of a building should be perceptible to the eye, harmonies for the eye. And one spectacular example of this is a very beautiful church in Venice, the Church of San Francesco de la Vigna, where we are fortunate enough to have a programme, a kind of manifesto that underlay the building of the church, where these claims are precisely what the architect is claiming. These ratios, they didn't just come from nowhere. In the minds of the devout Christian Renaissance theorists, they were given by God. This was divine order. It didn't come from nowhere. This was this was God's hand at work in the universe. And it is striking that you find these ratios being used again and again in sacred buildings, in churches. So in Alberti's churches, for example. The idea of a golden ratio is one that can be traced across art history in the work of Leonardo, Botticelli, Salvador Dali, and many others. The ratio is reached when the ratio of two quantities is equal to the ratio of the largest of the two quantities to their sum. I don't want to make you do any math, so let's look at an example in a painting. Edward Byrne Jones's 1880 painting, The Golden Stairs, employs the golden ratio to show 18 women descending a spiral staircase. The composition has a snail-like shape, often associated with the golden ratio. The title makes clear that the mathematical concept underpins the work, but Byrne Jones is also highlighting a connection with music. In the hands of the women are tambourines, wind instruments, and string instruments. He's drawing on music theory to infuse this piece with the principles of what is considered to be a higher art form. The question is, does this special ratio actually make for better paintings and architecture? You could claim, we could claim anything you wanted, but it was demonstrating it. And there was no real way of demonstrating that proportion or color in painting, for example, worked in the same way as the harmonies of music. You could claim that it did, but you couldn't actually demonstrate it. A very interesting example is um, the case of Sir Isaac Newton, that great philosopher and mathematician and theorist, who desperately wanted to show that the, the colors of the spectrum could be linked to the seven notes of the musical scale. So, and he wanted red to be C and so on. Um, and then just as you can arrange the colors of the spectrum around in a circle, and then they come back to the beginning. If you have a, a traditional artist's color circle, well, come back to the beginning. There's that same old notion that I was referring to just a little earlier, that this note is the same as that note. So a cycle of colours, a cycle of musical tones. But there was absolutely no proof of this. Again, Newton could claim it, and he actually had to juggle the figures a little bit to make it come out right. And he had to invent an entirely new colour in order to make seven. Artists and theorists stayed on this mathematical path for centuries until there was a shift in approach brought about by Romanticism in the 18th and 19th centuries. It's not quite right to call it a movement, but it's an impulse. It's a tendency that goes across poetry, drama, music, literature, and of course, painting. As that romantic spirit gains hold, 
that comparison between music and the visual arts takes on a completely different tone. And the theorists of both arts stop trying to look for these correspondences and actually look in a completely different place. They start thinking about the expressive character of music, that music directly affects our emotions and our feelings. And I think most people would intuitively agree with that. Yes, music has a direct impact on our minds, our souls, our feelings, and so on. Couldn't the visual arts have that same direct, direct and powerful impact? And the interesting thing was, of course, that music could do that without needing any kind of narrative. It didn't need objects, it didn't need representation, it didn't need stories of any kind. It could have those things. Of course, an opera has a story, so does a, a, a ballet, usually. But you didn't have to have a story, a narrative, or any kind of representation in order for music to be comprehensible. So painters, particularly as the 19th century drew to a close, painters started saying, you know what, for the last three, four, five, however many centuries, painting has been the handmaiden of things, preoccupations that are really the business of literature and drama and the verbal arts. Painting has been required to tell stories in some sense, or certainly the most exalted form of painting, which was called history painting, drew on Greek myth, it drew on stories from the Bible and so on, and it was all about the representation of action and emotion and so on, so making stories visible. But why, why do you need stories? Couldn't painting, which after all is in the end colour and form and composition, why couldn't it just use those elements, what one critic, Roger Fry, called its own merchandise, not borrowing the merchandise of other art forms? Why couldn't painting just consist of colours and forms and compositions, lines and so on? And as the 19th century turned into the 20th century, artists like the Russian painter Vasily Kandinsky started asking those kinds of questions in a really quite urgent way and experimenting for the first time with paintings that had no obvious subject matter or, or narrative at all, just colour compositions. And he called some of his most important paintings compositions. We've discussed Kandinsky before on our episode on synesthesia, which is a condition where a person has one or more of their senses connected, for example, tasting words or hearing colours. In Kandinsky's case, he experienced neurological connections between colors, shapes, and sounds. He employed his unique sensory experiences to create some of his composition paintings, and also to create a stage design for a performance of Pictures at an Exhibition, a composition by Modest Mussorgsky. The Russian composer Modest Mussorgsky was close friends with a Russian painter called Viktor Hartmann. Hartmann died tragically young. And as a tribute to his friend who had passed away, uh, Mussorgsky took a, a series of watercolours by Hartmann and sought to express the content of those watercolours in what has become a very famous, much-loved piece of, of music by Mussorgsky, pictures as an exhibition. Originally a set of piano pieces, subsequently orchestrated. There's a wonderful orchestration by Ravel, which is frequently performed as a, a concert piece. But the title of each section of that suite of pieces is actually the title of a watercolour by Hartmann. So, so we have um, 
the Great Gate of Kiev, we have um, the Marketplace of Limoges, we have the Old Castle and so on. Those are the titles of watercolours and, and Mussorgsky is looking for a musical form of expression to, to give voice, musical voice, to the content of those watercolours. We often think of visual art in terms of movements. Without knowing much about music theory, I wondered if there are ever parallels between musical and visual art movements. Let's take Impressionism as one example. The young Debussy, as soon as he first started publishing and performing his, his very earliest works, it took no time at all before critics coined the phrase musical Impressionism. Now, we're talking about the 1890s, Impressionism in painting had been around since the 1870s. So everybody knew what Impressionism was, you know, the works of Monet. The title probably has something to do with Monet's famous painting that was called Impression Sunrise, uh, which was certainly not an abstract painting. It showed uh, a harbour scene, um, a very blurry sun in the background, the sun reflected on the water. But it was all about kind of abstract things, even though it's not an abstract painting. It's about reflections. It's about shimmer. It's about the effects of light, atmosphere, and so on. So that had been around for a long time. They heard Debussy's music, and it seemed to have something of that same shimmer. Clarity, precision was somehow being sacrificed for a kind of wash of sound. Now, in fact, that's how they perceived it. If you really analyse Debussy's music, you can see that it is as meticulously constructed as any of the great masterpieces of, of previous centuries, musical masterpieces. But there is something very, very seductive about the tone colours that Debussy finds, particularly in his orchestral works, but also in his piano music. Colours, tone colours. Notice that phrase, tone colours. Tones don't have colours, but we start talking about tone colours because if you orchestrate very carefully, very skillfully, very subtly, then you, what you hear is like a shimmering palette of colours. And that was what the critics latched onto. That's why they used the phrase musical impressionism. Looking back to the 19th century and before, one thing that music could do that visual art couldn't do was span a period of time to convey complex narratives and changes. How were artists to work around this challenge? One problem for visual artists was, and, and they were very envious of music for this reason, one problem was that the visual arts were in essence static. Paintings, certainly up until the beginning of the 20th century, paintings uh, and, and certain sculptures and certainly buildings don't move around much, or one hopes they don't. The visual arts are static. And for traditional painters, think back to the 18th century, think to Sir Joshua Reynolds, who was president of the Royal Academy. He gave a series of lectures to the, the students of the newly founded Royal Academy in London. And one of the topics he comes back to several times is how can painters depict action when action requires the element of time you know to, to perform an action you you immediately need time and if it's a complicated action if it's a sequence of events how do you portray that when when your paintings are static and, and reynolds writes the painter has but one moment to exhibit you know it's that snapshot moment although of course you would never use the word snapshot it didn't exist in the 18th century then, all of a sudden, very, very end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, something totally dramatic happens, 
and that's the invention of film. And that, for the first time, is a genuinely moving visual art. In 1872, photographer Edward Mybridge was hired to do a photographic study of horses to settle a debate about whether there's a point at which all four of a horse's feet leave the ground while trotting. In the course of this study, Mybridge laid the early foundations for motion films by taking photos in quick succession and showing them on a device he invented called a zoopraxiscope. If they wanted to, filmmakers could make the claim, well, at last we have a moving art that really can mimic music because it can mimic music's sense of time and motion. And what do some of the earliest filmmakers do? They make films that deliberately mimic music, even to the extent of using musical titles. And some of the abstract experimental filmmakers of the early 20th century, filmmakers like Walter Ruttmann, Viking Egling, they make films that they call symphonies. Um, Egling made a film called Diagonal Symphony. And if you analyse the film, you can actually see visual forms that are clearly put together in sequences now, because you have sequences, you have movement, they're put together in a way that mimics how musical motifs are put together. And if you want a really accessible example of this, incorporating music into film, look at Disney's Fantasia, which many people poo-poo and, oh, vulgar and cheap, and I, I love it. I mean, that's, that's one of the ways I got switched on to classical music, like thousands, if not millions, of other kids in that era. You know, this was, this was the way into classical music. And some of Fantasia is abstract. The, the, the film actually starts with an abstract representation of the Bach, Takata and Fugue. To see info and images related to today's discussion, head over to artuk.org. There you'll find stories for episodes, including the synesthesia episode I mentioned, which you may want to check out if you haven't done already. If you enjoy this series, please tell a friend about us. For now, I'll leave you with the rest of this beautiful piano arrangement. As always, thank you for listening, and please join us again next time.